TED Audio Collective. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. click, click, click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. You're growing a business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. The stakes to save the Colorado River are high. Look, there's no water, there's no water for everybody. California and six other states on the river must reach a compromise, but they're divided. The fate of the river may come down to a 28-year-old. This is a historic thing coming. The people and the real human drama behind the historic negotiations. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts. Hi, everyone. We have something a little different for you today. An episode of The Big Switch, a new podcast we think you might enjoy. This is a show about how to rebuild our energy systems from Columbia University's SIPA Center on Global Energy Policy. Russia's invasion of Ukraine caused supply shortages and a scramble to find new sources of energy across Europe. In this five-part series, The Big Switch tackles the trillion-dollar question. Will this energy crisis speed up or slow down Europe's clean energy transition? And what will it mean for the rest of the world? Listen into The Big Switch wherever you get your podcasts. It began on the night of February 23rd for those in the United States. It was already the early hours of February 24th here in Ukraine. I can remember exactly where I was when I saw the news of the invasion of Ukraine. And there, there we Allie, go. I've just heard uh, the first siren has just gone off. Uh, and I've been told by city officials that that indicates that this is a city under attack. That again is the first time we have heard sirens in the capital, Kiev. I was at home at my kitchen table, and I was drinking my first cup of tea, and I was reading through my morning news feeds, and I saw the headlines. I saw that what had been speculated on over so many weeks was actually happening, that the fighting had begun while the United States was still sleeping. It was unprovoked, but this is what Russian President Vladimir Putin unleashed on Ukraine as the sun came up this morning. What was happening wasn't a total surprise, but it was still shocking. Russia had been taking Ukrainian land and arming Ukrainian separatists for years, but this was different. This was a full-scale attack on the whole country. A missile striking an industrial park in western Ukraine. A helicopter assault on an airport outside of Kiev. Close, intense fighting. And there are civilian casualties. The images I was looking at were heartbreaking. There was this pregnant woman being carried out of a bombed maternity ward. She was on a gurney. And there was this family that had been gunned down in the streets as they tried to evacuate. These images were tragic. 
and they took my breath away. They showed that a true humanitarian crisis was underway. And on top of all this, on top of the missiles, the tanks, the helicopters, it quickly became clear that Russia was prepared to use another type of weapon in its arsenal, one that would impact the entire world. I'm talking about energy. The European Union gets about 40% of its gas and 30% of its oil from Russia and has no easy substitutes if supplies are disrupted. As the war in Ukraine causes more death and destruction every day, European countries are remaining reliant on Russian energy, gas and oil. And everyone was asking the same question. Is Europe and perhaps the rest of the world about to see a major energy supply shock? And the answer was yes. And the next question was, how quickly can Europe respond? This is The Big Switch, a show about how to rebuild the energy systems that are all around us. I'm Dr. Melissa Lott, and I'm the Director of Research at Columbia University's SEPA Center on Global Energy Policy. This season, we're taking a deep dive into the European energy crisis that has been fueled by Russia's invasion of Ukraine last year. Specifically, we're looking at the crisis through the lens of Germany and Poland and asking whether short-term plans to solve the energy crisis are at odds with long-term goals to tackle the climate crisis. And we're trying to answer the trillion-dollar question. Will this energy crisis speed up or slow down Europe's push towards green energy? And what does it mean for the rest of the world? digging into the history of Germany and Poland's dependence on Russian fossil fuels, fuels that they use to heat their homes, run their factories, and fuel their power plants. Because if we want to understand how Europe can get itself out of this energy crisis, we first have to understand how it got here. When Russia invaded Ukraine last February, the international response was immediate and it was widespread. Every day there was news about new restrictions. We had major tech companies pulling out of Russia. We had the yachts of well-known Russian oligarchs being seized. And the Central Bank of Russia was blocked from accessing more than $400 billion that it held abroad. And there were restrictions on everything from selling software to Russia, buying Russian energy technology, and even operating Russian-backed TV channels outside of Russia. It seemed like the world was freezing Russia out of the global economy. But when you took a deeper look, there was one thing that the EU itself didn't touch right away, and that was energy. In spite of the fact that those energy bills were actually paying for the Russian tanks, guns, and soldiers in Ukraine. Well, those energy purchases have allowed Russia to continue financing their military, supplying an estimated $1 billion a day to Moscow. It is hard to underestimate the impact of Russia's aggression on European energy markets last year. But Anne-Sophie Corbeau, who's a colleague of mine here at Columbia, puts it this way. Our biggest supplier of natural gas, of coal, of oil, is suddenly attacking one of our neighbors. Anne-Sophie is a senior research scholar who studies what is arguably the most important fuel in Europe today, natural gas. And Russia's control over a lot of that natural gas? Well, it was the not-so-secret weapon that Russia still had in its back pocket when it attacked Ukraine last February. So when the news broke that European countries were finally considering bans on the import of some Russian fossil fuels, like coal, diesel, and oil, Russia did what it knew it could. It flexed. Russia is cutting off crucial natural gas supplies to both Poland and Bulgaria, both NATO allies. 
and Moscow is threatening to do the same thing to more European nations. This major escalation could be just the beginning. European Union leaders calling it flat-out blackmail. And that was not something that European leaders had anticipated. They thought that the revenues from natural gas were too important for Putin and that he would not want to give up on them. But that was a huge miscalculation because for Putin, oil is about money and natural gas is about geopolitics. And he started to cut the gas. It triggered a huge panic attack. And this is why during the summer, there was so much panic among all the European countries because they realized that they were not at all on the driving seat. Putin is on the driving seat and Putin is deciding exactly how much gas Europe is going to get. So let's step back just for a minute. How did Europe and particularly Germany and Poland end up in this mess? When we look at history, it turns out that it's been a long time in the making because before natural gas, for hundreds of years, there was a different fuel that Europe relied on, coal. And coal was king in Europe. Industrialization spread like a flame across the British coal fields. And soon, Europe began to follow suit. Coal had been used for home heating for centuries, but it was the most important fuel of the Industrial Revolution in the 18th century. First, it was used to make steel, and then to power trains, factories, and power plants. Coal and steel were so important that in 1951, a bunch of European countries got together to form something called the European Coal and Steel Community. This was a precursor to the European Union. And Germany was the biggest producer of coal in the world behind the U.S. and Great Britain. After World War II, West Germany continued to rely heavily on coal to rebuild. And it was the energy that powered an economic boon so impressive that people called it the economic miracle. Soon the talk was about the economic miracle in the Federal Republic. The workers made a significant contribution to it. We had to work, which we did gladly, and some months I worked more than 250 hours. But coal's dominance was quickly coming to an end. And this was due to a number of things. First, in many places like Germany, coal production was getting more and more expensive because miners were having to dig deeper and deeper into the ground to find high-quality coal. And this meant higher production costs. And on top of those costs, in the 50s and 60s, cheap oil and gas were coming into the market, which meant that local coal could not compete. So starting in 1958, the German coal industry found itself in a crisis. It was closing mines and it was laying off workers. And then came the rise of the automobile. In, in the late 60s, all of a sudden, almost every German family had a car. In the U.S., it had been different for a long time. That's America. In Germany, it took decades, and then it was in the 60s when all of a sudden they all got their cars. So, so you need oil, oil, oil. This is Wolfram Hoppenstedt, who's the director of the Willie Brandt Foundation, which is kind of like the presidential library, but for the former German chancellor. By 1970, West Germany had become the biggest economy in Europe and the third biggest economy in the world. The number of cars and trucks on the road was doubling every decade. It was boom time. But there was a problem. Two, actually. First, Germany's huge economy needed a lot of energy. And with coal on the decline, Germany turned to new cheap fuels like petroleum to keep it growing. 
And so the households, they got central heating all of a sudden, and, and they got oil heating systems. And uh, of course, and all Germans drove cars all of a sudden, so there was an enormous consumption of um, oil. Secondly, Germany's boom times were also dark times. It was the Cold War. The Soviet Union and the U.S. were threatening each other with nuclear weapons. And Germany itself was divided, literally and politically. West Germany was democratic, and East Germany was communist and controlled by the Soviet Union. The rest of Berlin remained sharply divided, with no contact at all between Russians and their World War allies. Across wall and wire, East Germans glared at the troops of the West, and nobody seems to be any nearer to a solution of the Berlin problem. These geopolitical tensions led to big changes in the energy system. And they all started with one guy. In 1969, West Germany's parliament elected a new chancellor, a guy by the name of Willy Brandt. He campaigned on this platform of reuniting East and West Germany and securing peace for the region. And the way he wanted to do it? By establishing closer economic ties to the Soviet Union. When he comes to power around 1970, around that time, he is arguing very strongly that there is uh, a new way to have a relationship with Russia. This is Patrick Wintour. He's a diplomatic editor at The Guardian. He's reported on the origins of Germany's dependence on Russian natural gas. The phrase they use is change through rapprochement or change through contact, and that they have a faith that Russia can be lured towards democracy. Okay, the idea was there, of course, if you make trade and exchange, it is less likely you go to war. It was one brick of this whole detente thing. Detente in this case meant the effort to thaw relations between the East and the West. So around the time that Willy Brandt got elected, the Soviet Union discovered vast reservoirs of natural gas, and German politicians and industry executives in steel, gas, and banking wanted to be a part of it. And they knew the Soviet Union had no way of getting this gas to market. And the Soviet Union had a problem. They did not have the technology to, to exploit the natural gas in Siberia. And they, even worse, they did not have the uh, capability to produce the pipes. So German industry executives, with the support of Willy Brandt's government, started to formulate a plan that would change Germany's energy system forever. And in 1970, German and Soviet politicians, as well as industry executives, met at this upscale hotel in Germany to talk it through. And they struck a deal. West Germany would provide pipes to the Soviet Union to build a gas pipeline, if Russia provided the gas, lots of it, and for cheap. Not only are kind of senior executives from Russian gas industry there, and senior executives from German business, there are also senior German politicians and they are there to give their seal of approval to this relationship. This deal marked a massive shift in the Cold War, and it was the first major Soviet-German gas pipeline. And shortly after signing in 1970, the West German Steel Company started to ship pipes. Experts say, historians say, that this paved the way for the other treaties. And that was Willy Brandt's goal, to have more contact, more negotiations, more economic ties between the East and the West as a way of maintaining peace in the region. Brandt knew that tapping into Russia's gas was just one piece of the puzzle, but it was a critical one, and his efforts got recognized in a big way. 71, Willy Brandt received the Nobel Peace Prize. And so far, the only German since the Second World War to receive the Nobel Peace Prize. 
At first, everything was going to plan. Germany had secured a major energy source for its growing economy, and the Soviet Union had found a stable market for its massive supply of natural gas. This strategy of closer economic ties will seem to be laying the groundwork for a lasting peace between the East and the West. But not everyone was convinced. Because at one point, the Americans do become concerned quite early on in this whole process uh, and say, you know, aren't you not going to be dependent upon um, Russia and you're going to be open to blackmail? And uh, the uh, German chancellery replied, you know, there's never going to be a point where we're going to be taking as much as 20% or even 15% of our gas from Russia. And over time, it became clear that supply and dependency on Russian gas was increasing far more than initially expected. When Russia invaded Ukraine last year, Germany was getting more than half of its gas from Russia. That's 30% more than Brandt said Germany would ever take from Russia back in the 70s. I would say if we had limited it to 20% in our relation to Russia of today, there would have been no leverage for Putin. And our dependency rate of Germany was 56%. And think of Hungary, 82 or something, Romania. And this is, this is a nightmare. So what on earth happened? At the risk of offending historians everywhere, I'm going to boil it down to three key moments in German history. The first was the oil shocks of the 70s, when oil-producing countries in the Middle East cut off oil to several countries, including the United States. Anger and bewilderment are growing as more and more Americans cope with gasoline lines and empty pumps. Gasoline shortages are spreading across the country. Closed gas stations are becoming increasingly common. Looking back at this moment, it feels somewhat similar to Europe's current crisis. And it motivated Germany to change its energy sources even more to buffer itself from what was going on in the world, mainly by getting more Russian gas. A decade later, that same motivation led Germany to complete the trans-gas pipeline from Russia. The project got started under Willy Brandt's government. And gas continued to flow through the Cold War. And it became this stable, seemingly guaranteed, energy source for Germany. And then we see the second key moment, which came in 1986 with the Chernobyl accident. There has been a nuclear accident in the Soviet Union, and the Soviets have admitted that it happened. The Soviet version is this. One of the atomic reactors at the Chernobyl atomic power plant near the city of Kiev was damaged, and there is speculation in Moscow that people were injured and may have died. Radioactive wind and rain pushed west into Germany. This sparked fear, and it led Germans to double down on their long-term goal of phasing out nuclear power. And less nuclear power meant that Germany needed more Russian gas, and not just for industry and heat, but also for electricity. And finally, there was the end of the Cold War, starting with the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989. From the Berlin Wall specifically, take a look at them. They've been there since last night. They are here in the thousands. They are here in the tens of thousands. Occasionally, they shout, Die Mauer muss weg, the wall must go. Thousands and thousands... East and West Germany reunited. And shortly after, the Soviet Union collapsed. In Moscow, the hammer and sickle is lowered for the last time. And an era comes to an end. The end of the Cold War opened this door for stronger relations with the newly independent Russia. And German leaders took this opportunity to push for more pipelines and more gas. And from 1998 to 2005, German Chancellor Gerhard Schroeder pushed the hardest. He's the one who helped solidify plans for a pipeline from Russia called Nord Stream 1. 
There was this strong conviction in Germany that the country needed Russian gas, and there was also the illusion that Russian natural gas was politically, politically neutral. This is Janusz Reiter, who's the president of the Center for International Relations, an independent think tank based in Warsaw. Back in the 1990s, he was also Poland's ambassador to Germany. And they were also uh, very often saying that without this project, the German economy would be weakened and this would have a negative impact on the entire European economy, uh, which, of course, led to the, well, to the, to the belief that actually uh, Nord Stream was in Europe's interest, even if uh, Europe, the rest of Europe did not understand why it was in its interest. When it came online in 2011, Nord Stream 1 dramatically expanded Europe's, including Germany's, dependence on Russian gas. And for a lot of folks, that meant good stuff. For German industry, that dependence translated into cheap gas for chemicals and steel and machinery. And for the average German, it meant cheaper heating bills. 15 years ago, we had to spend about 200, 300 euros per month for heating it, heating and warm water. For years now, it was thanks to Putin who made us cheap junkies for his cheap natural gas, it was down to 100 euro per month. Now, this idea that Germany could become junkies for Russian energy wasn't lost on Willy Brandt back in the 70s. There was actually a moment a few years right after Germany had signed that initial pipes for peace deal with the Soviet Union in 1973 that feels a bit haunting in retrospect. Brandt had an interview with the famous magazine in Germany, magazine Der Spiegel. And they asked him, aren't there any concerns about buying natural gas from the Soviet Union, from, you know, our major opponents, at least still, Cold War still, I mean, detente, yes, but, and, and they're, in a way, the bad guys over there. It's, an, it's not a democracy. And Brandt answered, well, I wish I could choose only good guys to buy our natural our energy from oil or gas. I cannot choose, but it's not enough. I wish I could choose only good guys to buy our energy from. I cannot choose. This is a reality that became crystal clear for Germany and the rest of Europe after Russia invaded Ukraine last year. And we saw the consequences of this dependence and faced the reality of how hard it would be for Germany to end its relationship with Russian energy. And next door in Poland, that was true for different reasons. Poland, where coal never stopped being king, suffered in the aftermath of the Ukraine invasion, which seems honestly a bit strange if you dig into the history a bit. It started uh, 350 years ago. Coal was cheap. Uh, it was our domestic energy source. And, you know, it developed our economy. Dr. Joanna Pandera is president of the Polish think tank Forum Energy. And she says that coal has always been the pride of the country. To support coal and the coal industry was to be patriotic. I recently bought a book which is 70 years old, so it was published in the 50s. And the book, uh, the name of the book is Angry Call, and it's actually for children. It, it describes the story about the call, um, uh, which was insulted uh, by children because children said to the call that you are dirty, we won't play with you, go away. And then um, Cole was uh, just felt insulted and he escaped. And then there was no light, there was no heating, there was no food. <laughs> and it was really like interesting story that being a child, you know, in 50s, you could read such book. 
there was a lot of respect for miners' uh, work, which was very dangerous. Uh, and this, this was this entire narrative that they risked their life in order to build, you know, a Polish economy, to build industry, to deliver heat homes, uh, to uh, to produce electricity, so the other can uh, uh, live in a peace, in independence from uh, independent also from other countries. To understand how Poland developed its energy sector, you have to understand this desire for energy independence. Because for centuries, Poland was invaded and carved up by its neighbors. The relation between Poland and Russia was historically always tense. So Poland has, you know, very vivid, dynamic history uh, in the context of uh, Soviet Union, actually, invasions uh, on Poland and also between Germany and and Russia or or Soviet Union, we always felt uh, a a bit under pressure, you may say. After World War II, Poland became a Soviet satellite state like East Germany. It was part of what we called the Eastern Bloc, which is a group of communist countries around the world. And although Poland's Communist Party ruled the country, the most powerful communist party, the one in Moscow, pulled most of the strings, particularly in the energy sector. Again, here's Janusz Reiter. So Poland um, became the chief uh, supplier of coal to the to the other countries of the then Eastern Bloc. So this made coal uh, such a strategic uh, good. But in the 1980s, that all started to change. Protests against communist rule rocked the country. Mining trade unions actually helped to fight against communist rule. And finally, in 1991, so this was two years after the Berlin Wall had fallen in neighboring Germany, the Soviet Union collapsed. Poland began its shift towards becoming a democratically elected, independent country for the first time in decades. And this is when coal became much more than just a patriotic symbol for Poland. It also became a symbol of energy independence, self-sufficiency, and capitalism. The economy, which was until late 80s, organized according to the central planning idea, Needed to uh, needed to be transformed into market economy. Alexander Spohr is a lead climate and energy consultant with Ecoris, and he says that Poland's transition to a free market wasn't easy. Many coal miners were laid off. The coal mines were shut down. There was four hundred thousand jobs in coal mine in hard coal mine in Poland, whereas now we have seventy five thousand uh, coal miners. Polish coal took a hit for a while as Poland worked through some of these democratic growing pains. But it still had three things going for it. Three things that Poland needed to help build its new democracy. It was cheap, it was abundant, and it was Polish. So at the time when neighboring EU countries were starting to phase out coal due to growing climate and health concerns, coal was still overwhelmingly dominant in Poland. But in 2004, Poland joined the European Union and had to adopt new environmental protections. And so suddenly this debate around climate started popping up in Polish politics. Here's Janusz Reiter again. People started asking about quality of life, about quality of air, air pollution. And starting from that, they discovered, so to speak, 
climate as their issue and not as an issue that was imposed on them by the European Commission or by, well, any other foreign forces. Meanwhile, back in Germany, Chancellor Gerhard Schroeder was promoting Nord Stream 1, and most Germans were on board with the pipeline. But the Poles, not so much. The criticism of Nord Stream 1 and even more of Nord Stream 2 was that the pipeline or the pipelines were part of the Russian strategy of undermining Ukraine as an independent state. And it was part of the strategy to to make Europe dependent on uh, Russian gas. So the, the Polish arguments were not so much It was not so much about Poland itself. It was about Europe and especially about Ukraine. Why was Ukraine so important to Poland? Because it was obvious that uh, if Russia controls Ukraine, the pressure on Poland and on the Baltic countries would increase. In Poland, they were starting to feel the pressure in the form of higher prices for Russian gas. And they were also beginning to see the power that Russia had over the region. There were at least two times Russia stopped the gas supply to Ukraine. This happened in 2006 and again in 2009 over some disputes related to the gas pipelines that were going through Ukraine. In Poland, this was perceived as a signal. If it happens to them, it can happen to us. But despite Polish concerns, Germany went ahead with building Nord Stream 1. And in 2011, gas started flowing. Poland continued to oppose the pipeline. But in the background, it was actually developing its own dependence on another form of Russian energy. Again, here's Joanna Pandera. Poland, this coal country, became more and more reliant on coal imports. Within the last seven years, they closed 14 mines. So now we only have uh, 20 left. And what is the challenge that uh, uh, lowering the production of coal, we are not lowering the usage of coal and uh, or not enough to keep our energy uh, independence. Poland found itself exporting coal, but also needing to import even more and more coal. And who had the cheapest coal for sale? Russia. So Poland, a country that had prided itself on energy independence built on its coal production, found itself in a place where its imports of coal exceeded its exports. And so Poland became dependent on Russia, too. It was seen as something that was economically uh, needed, but politically a little bit um, embarrassing. And and Poland's criticism of uh, Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2, part of the Polish legitimate criticism was that uh, importing gas, natural gas from Russia, was about financing the Kremlin and financing the aggressive policy of Kremlin. Well, and suddenly Poland did the same not with natural gas, but with coal. This was not something that the country could be proud of. And that brings us back to near present day in 2022. Dependencies on energy from Russia were locked in thanks to that long history. And there were major concerns about supply well before the invasion of Ukraine. We were in a very, very market. I mean, people were already extremely worried because the gas prices, they were very high. They were higher than I had ever seen in my entire career. 
This is Anne-Sophie Corbeau again. She's talking about something that often gets overlooked in conversations about the European energy crisis. Europe's energy supply was already constrained before the war. Strong demand for natural gas during the post-pandemic economic recovery had sent energy prices through the roof. But Russia's invasion last February sent things into a full-on tailspin. Tonight, there is nothing in the pipeline from Russia. Today, Russia's state-owned gas producer, Gazprom, announced a complete halt to the flow of natural gas through that key Nord Stream 1 pipeline to Germany. People were starting to be worried about having power cuts and gas cuts, not having enough for winter. And with good reason. Russia began retaliating against international boycotts and EU sanctions by cutting gas supplies to its neighbors. It was a move that was aimed at dividing Europe, but it backfired. We must now reduce as soon as possible our dependency on Russian fossil fuels. I'm deeply convinced we can. This is European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen. She's the top official in the EU. And in the months after the war started, she and other European leaders fleshed out a plan to accelerate Europe's long-run transition off of fossil fuels. They called it Repower EU. The first level is on the demand side. That is saving energy. Sounds simple, is simple, but very effective. Then on the supply side, it's of course diversifying away from Russia for fossil fuels and towards other reliable, trustworthy suppliers. And the most important part, accelerating the clean energy transition, so massive investment in renewable energy. And over the summer, they began implementing this plan. They asked people to turn down their thermostats, banned Russian coal, and invested in more renewables. At the same time, they spent a ton of money to get liquefied natural gas from other parts of the world. In the end, Europe averted the worst-case scenario over the winter, which could have shut down the EU economy and caused energy shortages, threatening lives across the region. Some of this was thanks to the actions that they took to reduce demand and buy up supply from other parts of the world. But they were also really lucky. The winter was mild in Europe. They didn't need as much energy. Plus, they benefited from reduced demand in other parts of the world, including China. But something else happened too. As Europe reduced its dependence on Russian fossil fuels, it saw its greenhouse gas emissions increase as it shifted its energy sources. Germany's parliament on Friday agreed to reactivate retired coal power plants to generate electricity. This would decrease their reliance on precarious Russian supplies, but would potentially bring the country further from its climate goals. A huge ship containing liquefied natural gas arrived at the port of Wilhelmshaven on the North Sea. It's a key part of the infrastructure that will allow the processing of the fuel to take place. Germany is counting on LNG as an alternative to the natural gas it used to receive via pipeline from Russia. So why couldn't Europe, and specifically Germany, just flip the switch to renewables to fill the energy gap? We'll dig into that in our next episode, where we zoom in on Germany's energy transition plan called the Energiewende. The Big Switch is produced by Columbia University's SIPA Center on Global Energy Policy in partnership with PostScript Media. If you appreciate the reporting and the storytelling that we're doing here, you can rate and review the show at Apple and Spotify. You can also send a link to a colleague or friend who you think would like it. And you can find all of our back episodes, along with this current season, wherever you get your pods. 
This show is produced by Daniel Waldorf, Dan Ackerman, Camille Stennis, Ann Bailey, and Stephen Lacey. Ann Bailey is our senior editor. Sean Marquand wrote our theme song and mixed the episodes. And a special thanks to our Columbia team, Harry Kennard, Natalie Volt, Q Lee, Jen Wu, and Liz Smith. The show is hosted by me, Dr. Melissa Lott. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>